provide solutions that scale outside of Canada. I love that view of like the space. Like, yeah, like that's how can you think as big as possible? We're going to mine the universe for what we need. Like my boss Stephen, Foresight, um, you guys are a clean tech incub- uh, accelerator uh, working out of BC. Um, looking forward to, ha- I've been looking forward to having you on. Uh, you are the VP of acceleration. Uh, I, I'm dying to learn about more about the clean tech uh, space. You know, we hear a lot about it in Canada. We hear a lot about it in the news. But I want, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. What is clean tech, and what do, you, what do you guys do? Wow, that set me up for quite a long monologue, uh, Ravi. <laughs> I guess clean tech is something we see as AI. It's an approach or a tool or an underlying technology. It crosses all industries. Uh, we have companies supporting the built environment, uh, construction materials, you know, sensors, HVAC technology. We have companies in energy. We we're talking about electrical generation, transmission, distribution, talking about oil and gas, talking about that entire natural resource sector, transportation, everything from the hydrogen economy to actually route optimization mm-hmm. and saving energy used. Clean tech is, is more a view of getting more out for the same or less inputs. Right? It's We're looking at some of the metrics we want to use, and I found some great ones where it actually looks at things related to GDP. So can you use less energy to get the same amount of GDP? Mm-hmm. So it looks at a ratio or how much water, right? Fresh water resources are you using for a given amount of GDP? And how can we make those ratios better? That's what clean tech is. Mm-hmm. So really yeah. it looks at, if I could stop there, it would be four things. It would be, what are your GHG emissions? What are your water use? What is your material use, right? If you're using the whole world supply of copper in one year to generate your economy, that's not going to work really well. Obviously, the goal there is to get everything down to sort of a zero, like we're using nothing, it's completely circular, and then energy is the fourth fourth one. Does that kind of answer your question? No, absolutely. I think it gives a great framework framework for us to get started because it, it's such an all-encompassing field, it seems like. you know, It requires a lot of multifaceted approach into a lot of different sectors, a lot of different businesses, but I think you brought it down right away. You know, how do we uh, increase efficiency in our process into our, into the life cycle of products, right? And and into the build of products, right? Um, I think one of the things uh, your accelerator uh, that's kind of unique is you bring in a lot of like bigger companies into into the framework, right? You, you don't just incubate small firms. You work with SMEs. You work with large firms. You work. You bring uh, investors in the clean tech into this framework, and you bring them all together. Um, and one of the things uh, I've, I've seen is that you guys do something called a, a reverse pitch, where people in this space, like uh, the people in the, um, the people who are leaders in this, are looking back and teaching, "Hey, this is what we want. <laughs> this is what we're looking for." Right? Could you talk a little bit more about that? That's definitely a passion piece for our, our CEO, Jeanette Jackson. She actually mm-hmm. was a clean tech entrepreneur. And she worked as an executive in residence at Foresight, working with a whole bunch of companies before she took the reins. And she always describes it as what we want is problem-driven innovation. Mm. I always explain it as we see tons of little companies come out 
and they need to get into, oh, I'm going to solve municipal wastewater problems. Municipal wastewater industry is massive. You're talking about you know, huge bureaucratic organizations with billion dollar projects. It's really, really challenging to penetrate that. And especially if it's not the pain that they're feeling at that time. Lots of times people come out and say, oh, I've got this technology that makes something 15% better. And for sure, 15% is a good improvement, but it might not be enough. And they wonder why people aren't picking up their 15% improvement. And they're discounting the risk that people have to adopt new technology. Mm -hmm. And so what you need to do is you need to find the pain. What is it that that company is going to say, oh, you've got that solution? I'm, I, that's, that's where my pain is right now. I'm going to be right next to you. I will buy it. I will fund the trial. We need that today. How can we find that pain? And a lot of times the entrepreneurs and the innovators, you know, they get, they're in love with their idea. They come up with a solution. It's, it's a better way of doing it. I need to convince people of that not saying what is it my market wants to buy. And so that's where our industry innovation, our reverse pitches kind of come from is how can we go out to, and I happen to work on one of those challenges with uh, FP Innovations and, and uh, a couple of companies like West Fraser and Norboard in the forest product sector. So, so what do they need? What, what would they put down a $2 million PO for this year if they could have it? Mm-hmm. So that's where they get up and they say, this is what we're looking for. And since then, we've worked with Quadrio. We've had some really good success with COSIA, the Canadian Oil Sands Industry Association. We've worked with some great partners there that say, yeah, if you can do this for us, I will buy $2 million tomorrow. You don't have to sell me. You just have to build build it and show me it works. And I will buy it right now. Who has the best one? We need that thing now. And so that problem-driven innovation what is it that the industry is, is calling for, right? That's what we want. I mean, you sort of mentioned that you were a executive in residence at uh, the U of T. Mm-hmm. You know, where were the successful companies? It's where they were addressing a big pain, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a very unique uh, model that you have and uh, and kudos to your CEO to drive this because a lot of incubators, uh, et cetera, I've never heard of this. Uh, like, you know, it seems like such a no-brainer that you explain it, but like the idea of industry coming in and saying, hey, this is what we're looking for. Um, I think that's a very unique model that you have. So let's talk a little bit about the, the accelerator program you have. At one side, you foster innovation from, you know, um, let's let's build companies, let's build the tools. You know, you have companies, the bigger companies coming in saying, addressing these are problems that we see. Can you build tools? And you bring in people who can build the tools for it and, and help them connect them with industrial partners. And the other side, you bring in, you know, the people who are looking for drastic changes for for uh, disruptions, especially to, uh, I think what you call it, the circular economy, to build more like less waste and more um, mm-hmm. more reuse, uh, recapture of waste into different processes. Um, I was looking into some of uh, some some of your articles about um, you know the events you ran, and I think one of the one of the case examples was um, uh, in the fisheries department. Uh, there was like a, I think Trident Fisheries. Uh, they have about, they they noted they came in and told you you know they have. One to two, one to three million uh, pounds of uh, shells, right, left over from their production capabilities, right, like crab shells, and that's something you think about. Right? You know, for 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 most people don't understand that, but it's it's that is a very industry specific knowledge, right, that someone can then use to you know to develop something around that. Okay, we have the supply, this sitting there, just waste sitting there, that just actually costs money to uh, to maintain and to dispose properly of and not make an ecological project. How can we take that and recapture it, do something with it, right? And I think that's, that, that's, that's a very noble uh, noble cause to be. 
how did that how did that fit into your model? How do how do you how do you make that work? I think we're we're lucky in where the intersection of the challenges that that obviously some industries face and the the innovators and academics and people smart enough to do something with that. And and I'll take a step back mm. and go through a little bit of, of our story, at least as I see it. So I wasn't there for the whole thing. I've only been with the uh, accelerator for the past two years, but it's been around for seven years. And when it started, it started, I think like a lot of accelerators saying like, we just need to get these SMEs and give them the, the tools and the skills that they need to be successful. If we can teach them how to tell their story better or how to identify their customers' pain better, they'll build a better solution. They'll raise the money. All these problems will kind of address themselves. Let's start with the SME. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've evolved that. We've really sort of said it's not going to be enough. If we do, can somehow take our, our best, uh, most knowledgeable mentors and, and take all the information out of their brains and then stick it into the brain of, an of a younger entrepreneur or somebody with that trying to develop that business, that's still not going to be enough. And I would and I would like to stop and say if you, you know if, if you were in EIR at the University of Toronto, so much of our value comes from our executives and residents, the people who've done it already, right? Somebody else with a kind of third party and dispassionate view can look at what these companies are doing and say, you know what, this is what I would do in your situation. You really need to go over there, or hey, I know a guy in that industry. Let me connect you with them. That is a huge part of what our accelerator does: is those connections with our mentors. But we stopped and we said, even with that value, it's not enough. And we sort of identified this Helix 5 model. So started with the SME, but we realized we need to build the, the links to industry. We need industry pulling those solutions, right, mm -hmm. from the little SMEs and, and, and bringing those two pieces together. We also realized what we need is academia. We need academia to understand what industry's pains are, right? They can't just be working on solutions in the chemistry lab that and, and giving it to the intellectual uh, property licensing office, we need to actually be something that'll be commercializable. We need to understand what they're building the solution for. Mm -hmm. We need to bring government to the table. Obviously, we're in Canada. Government is uh, very supportive. Lots of government granting programs. Yep. It needs have shifted in the last year. Some things have happened, um, but government continues to support, but also regulatory environment. Some of these things are not going to take off unless regulation shifts. So we need government at the table. And the last piece, the last piece of that five is, is investors, right? We need them to be aware of the clean tech stories. We need impact investors and we need them at, you know, we need angels, we need pre-seed, we need seed, we need series A, series B, series C. We need the non-dilutive debt finance. We need banks to understand the stories that clean tech companies are, are telling. And we need them to get involved early to see how it is being de-risked. So those are the kind of five groups that we're trying to pull together. So when you sort of say you're looking at you know, putting together industry with, with the SMEs and the innovators, yeah, we're also trying to introduce the industry to the academics, right? Maybe they spin out a solution that we, that we didn't think about, right? We're just trying to get all these people together. We're just trying to be the little nexus that breaks down those silos to create the collisions and create the opportunities. Um, with that, I will I will stop because you brought up the fisheries one, which I'm not as familiar with as a great little story. Uh, a company we support, Sarah's, out of Alberta, and what they do 
is they go to breweries and the spent grain from breweries mm. and they take that spent grain and they grow mushrooms on it. So they take the mushrooms off, they sell the mushrooms and the mycelium, the little roots that the mushrooms grow actually somehow increases the nutritional value of the spent grain and they sell that to feedlots, to hmm. feed the cows. So a wonderful little circular economy story where they're creating as much value as possible out of this waste product from one industry. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. It's very, very cool stuff. There's another company based in BC here, uh, Refeed, where they're, they're taking um, uh, pre-consumer waste food, sorting that out, using that as best as possible, and then at the, as a last step, uh, you know, putting in a digester, either an anaerobic digester or a composter to reuse that. So really, the, yeah, there's some very cool people looking at how to reduce and reuse as much as possible. Um, and we are trying to put together the, the industries that are creating waste with people who have good ideas for how to use it. Definitely. Uh, we actually had like a, one of our prime examples of a, of a clean tech uh, company that came out of the University of Toronto. It is a company called Genesis run by Luna. Um, she discovered as an undergrad um, that that um, in recycling, like sorry, in um, in uh, manufacturing of plastics, right? There's something called VOCs, volatile organic chemicals mm-hmm. that are required, um, which come from organic waste. And recycling, like sorry, the plastic manufacturing industry actually gr- like grow their own corn or even buy corn and actually inflate the price of uh, of agriculture by you know sourcing it directly from 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 um from plant from actual crops and uh, they take it from there source the materials and a lot most of the stuff is left for waste but they need that's the only way they can get quality quality vocs and she realized you know there's a bunch of loss uh you know all these restaurants in, in toronto every restaurant you know has all this food waste and one of the things she realizes what they do is you know they actually pay money for a service they're going to pick up their waste right take it away and all that service does is grinds it up and just puts it into the sewers which sends it into the lake and that that's what's happening right and if you notice like all the if you, like those thousands thousands of restaurants the, the you know, millions of tons of food organic waste it's just going right into the into the lakes which is insane which i don't even know about so she's like if we what if we can just cut that right the block instead of telling the restaurants hey instead of paying someone to pick it up we'll just come pick it up for free and we'll we'll utilize it for a better purpose well, we have instant supply there, and we have a, a, a product or service. And she went out, and she actually found a type of bacteria that can break down food, uh, food waste, and produce VOCs. And she created, started creating a container for it. Instead of a small container, getting bigger and bigger and bigger in size, increasing productivity. You know, her startup just raised, you know, this is like six years later, uh, I think three, close to three million dollars, and now they're in a different stage of their life cycle. But one of the the issues. Was that you know Luna like was like from from our standpoint uh, within this cluster was like almost a um, it was an accident right this is someone who found something that fit an industry that fit all, you know all those kind of benchmarks and kind of launched a clean tech company whereas I really like your model because it comes and shows hey these are very niche problems that exist you, you get the industry to be like identified these are the waste that are in there right and and can you figure out can you know innovators can you figure out how to recapture this? How can we put it back in there? And it reduces the accident level of entrepreneurship, right? Where people are going out and finding things out by accident, by you know, just by research or sheer, sheer, um, sheer luck of being in the right place at the right time. It turns it into a more calculated effort, right? And I think 
this is what we're seeing with the innovation economy, right? A more calculated effort to raise the the, the companies that will solve the problems of today, tomorrow. Um, Right. So talking about government and this and, and the support you get, like what has the feedback been like since your seven year journey um, uh, as an accelerator? I think the feedback has been very positive. I think it's it's always hard. I, I, I liken. I liken when we do our cohorts and I didn't I didn't talk too much about our, our actual program. We, we do have a cohort based model, so we bring in companies. We provide some training for them. We provide mentorship for them. And it's bittersweet mm. because it's like sitting at a friend's wedding. You know, the more weddings you sit at, the more divorces you're going to hear about. Yeah. The more of these cohorts and the more of these little companies we support, I know the statistics, it's a hard road, right? And, and some of them are going to fail and they're all passionate and they're all hardworking. So that's always very, very hard when, when you see it, you know, after a couple of years, after a lot of good hard work, after some, some great enthusiasm and possibly fantastic idea, it doesn't always come together. For the companies that does come together, they are always uh, generally very appreciative of the support we've been, we've been able to give them in the mentorship we've been able to offer and the, the kind of programming and the timeliness of it uh, in, in things that they don't know. I mean, we've worked with people who are extremely intelligent and very, very well trained. I mean, you go through a decade of, of training, you know, at, after high school to become a PhD in chemistry and really specialize in some narrow field where you're going to make some membrane that's going to be used in carbon capture. And then you come out and somebody says, now you have to learn a whole new skill set before you raise the million dollars, before you can go to the next stage, before you can raise the next five, before you can actually get a professional CEO in to run your company and take it the rest of the way, right? Mm-hmm. They've got to learn all these new skills. And so the feedback on that is, is, is it's tough because we want them to know everything on day one, right? I don't want you to make a mistake tomorrow that's going to set you back three months. And, and at the same time, I can't take all of your time and have you do nothing but this. I need you to keep working on your business and your technology and other things. So I can't wait three months to give you that piece of information afterwards. So it's definitely a balancing act there. But uh, there's been very good response in the fact that we're very focused on clean tech. So we've had very good partnerships with other accelerators. We work mm-hmm. with Platform Calgary to support their clean tech companies out of Calgary. We've got a partnership with Tech Edmonton in Edmonton. Uh, just before the holiday break, we actually signed an agreement with North Forge in Manitoba. We've uh, worked very closely with CSI, the Center for Social Innovation there in Toronto. So the fact that we are narrow in what we do lets us work with a lot of other accelerators and support their clean tech ventures. And I think the government, because it is a focus, obviously it has been very supportive of our of our efforts. And, and we've tried to be innovative in our programming as well. Like a lot of accelerators, we have what I call our CEO training course, right? Like here's how to be a CEO. Here's how to mm-hmm. identify the opportunity and communicate it to investors. And, and is it really worthwhile? And, and how are you going to tell that story? But we actually developed a CTO training course mm-hmm. because so much of clean tech is, is hard technology. And it's going to take years to commercialize. And I'll, I'll tell a story from... Actually, it's a Toronto startup, uh, Solistra. They're doing some uh, some carbon capture technology, carbon utilization, I think, to be more specific. 
And one of the guys there tells me this, tells me the story of, of he actually went to Mars, which is Canada's largest accelerator. They've got tons of funding. They have programs that I am envious of, right? They can do all these things. But he says, Steve, I'm, I'm sitting there and I need $250,000 and a year to build my pilot to go from, you know, milligrams up to hundreds of grams. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to take me another seven years, another $5 million to make it to a fully commercial product where I'm actually getting revenue. And I'm sitting next to someone who needs $1,000 to buy a new laptop, and he's hoping to be profitable in six months. Like the lessons you're teaching those people on their pro formas are, are very different, right? And even down to the, the challenges they're facing and, and you know, you want to pe- put people in the room who are facing similar challenges. So that's where I think our focus on clean tech really allows us to, to specialize in what we offer to those people. And the CTO of those companies, it's very different. With a software company, your learning cycle is really quick and you can fix problems really quick. Mm-hmm. If you had to design a pilot and you were going to get the results at the end of the year, those mistakes, you only get one shot at that. The mistake can kill your company. And we saw companies fail because they specified something at their little pilot that then didn't scale up to their demonstration plan. And then, oh, well, I've spent a million dollars from the investors. And, oh, we learned something. Give me another million dollars. Let me give it another shot. I, I promise it'll work this time. And, and investors aren't that forgiving with yeah. their millions of dollars, right? So that's where we realized that we needed to bring in mentors and we need to bring in more guidance and training on the CTO side of things, mm. which from my experience has been fairly unique and very well received by our companies yeah. again. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard mixed feelings from the investor community about clean tech. Um, they call it uh, a bubble where it's like, uh, you know, it's like, a, it's like a social innovation cause. It's like, yeah, we're doing it for more for like the, pro- the, the prosperity or like the, the namesake of we're doing good, social good, rather than it being a portfolio good, right? It actually brings returns. But whereas the, the whereas like I think it's I think it's fragmenting because exactly the point you made, right? Like, um, you know, you can sit on a laptop, make a software, a SaaS business, and it's instantly scalable, you know, for a very marginal cost, and it's profitable very quickly. Or you know, you can launch things very uh, test in the market very uh, very efficiently. And uh, you know, there's seems to be in the investor community, you know, a fracture now, you know, uh, the earlier they used to be a more a generalist kind of point of view where you generalize your portfolio and hedge it across things. But now people are focusing, oh, we're going to focus on fintech. We're going to focus on SaaS businesses. And I think there is now more focus on companies that want to be like, you know, we're going to focus on clean tech. We're going to focus on a long-term vision. We're going to focus on things that actually change things for the better. And there is a social, uh, social cause behind this. And I think, and they think that, that's part of it. That's part of the investor's landscape, right? And I think that's 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 wonderful because it, the, the clean tech industry doesn't necessarily uh, maintain the appetite of many traditional investors. I think it takes a very a very selective few who see not just the potential behind it, but see the the good behind it. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like the, the social good that happens behind these things. Like, how do you market, you know, the the the, the cause behind this? Because the, because like that industry, the, the you know, clean tech especially, it it, it carries a connotation in our a connotation uh, in our in our in our vocabulary in our in the current zeitgeist, right? Mm-hmm. We know the world is burning, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> we right, we it's it's been ingrained into us. Yes. But like, 
how are we, how do we sell the solution? How do you sell the tools? Yeah. How do we get the money? So, I mean, first off, you're absolutely correct. Uh, I, somebody much smarter than me shared with me, he'd done some research and he shared with me, uh, I think the BDC, they keep track of their clean tech investments and they showed their portfolio returns for clean tech versus other sectors. And it wasn't good. And yeah, I mean, you, you had all of the, the solar investments, right, in a, a decade mm-hmm. earlier that, that just went, went bust and big capital investments. And, and, and so, yeah, there's some horror stories out there. And for sure, some people put their, their hands in the fire and got burned and they're not going to be coming back anytime soon. But I think if you look at some of the companies, if you look at a carbon engineering, right, uh, up in Squamish and they have their, uh, they got that $100 million investment with Occidental to build their direct air capsule, cap- capture plant down in Texas. There's starting to be some wins. There's starting to be some good news stories. There's starting to be some things where if you'd put your money in, things are, are, are coming to a head. It might have also been early, right? It, you know, what's the appetite for all of these technologies? Mm. And I think the appetite is really changing. When you're looking at pricing things accurately, all of a sudden, if you put a price on carbon that makes some of these make sense, you can be doing soil sequestration that makes uh, some of the regenerative agriculture approaches and plays and technologies very, very attractive, very, very valuable. If you can start monetizing the benefits that come out of these activities, it changes the economics. I think the maturity around the business models that companies can take, you know, some of those software companies, you know, SaaS has become very, very popular and getting that you know, uh, steadily growing revenue stream or, you know, that, that sort of thing versus a very lumpy, oh, I'll sell you the equipment. Let me sell you some solar panels and come back in 10 or 15 years when you need new ones. That's maybe more challenging. How can you alter the business model to make it more attractive, to make it more attractive to investors, to make the whole thing make sense? On the investor side, I think there, there's certainly some work to do. And historically, it's been a challenge. But there are some great companies to be found. Mm. And there are people who are motivated and say, we, do, we will need this technology. And, and I believe we're going to need this technology. It's going to be such a shift. Like you look at you know, carbon capture and you look at what the uh, International Energy Agency says we need. Billions of tons of carbon capture and sequestration. Right? So you're looking at, at all those companies. If really we're going to do that, somebody there is going to win big. That's that's lottery tickets that that are yeah. they're laying around for what you're going to be doing to try and capture and sequester billions and billions of tons of carbon. Hundreds of plants are going to be needed if yeah. we're really going to be net zero by 2050 or 2070. So knowing that it's coming and seeing, you know, I, I love that Wayne Gretzky quote, go where the puck is going to be. Mm. And we're starting to see it really pick up in, in terms of the pace of adoption of some of these technologies and actually trialing it. Like if you look at the boundary dam, I like carbon capture. So we'll just talk about carbon capture for a while if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah, no problem. All right. So boundary dam, 12 years ago in Saskatchewan, they built the largest, I think at the time, uh, commercial scale carbon capture plant. To be honest, it was way ahead of its time. They really said, okay, this is going to be the first one and this is going to really help Canadian technology and they're just going to roll out all across the world. And then the financial crisis hit and nobody wanted to invest in, in carbon capture at the time. So it turns out that they were well ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, interest is coming back around again. 
I don't think I, I would be um, out of line to, to point out that Lehigh is in the uh, pre-engineering stages on a carbon capture plant for their cement fa facility in Edmonton, right? And I already mentioned the carbon capture facility that uh, carbon engineering is, is developing in, in partnership with Occidental, right? So yeah, there's a 12 year gap there. So your returns, if you'd invested in that first guy aren't gonna be great, but now I, I think there's actually momentum building around that. And so that's on you know, how I see the interest growing on, on the investor side. And when it comes to companies, we're very market driven at, at Foresight. And it's interesting because sometimes people say, but this is a good thing to do. And we say, but it's not a scalable business model. How are you going to make money for investors? There are other clean tech incubators and accelerators out there that will take social ventures that will look at something and say, this is a not-for-profit business model and that's how it makes sense. And at Foresight, we say, well, this is what we're good at. We're good at working with people who have a business case. And a lot of times the, it's not, you know, the, the carbon credits are nice to have, right? It, it's what pain are you solving for them? Like why, why are they going to optimize their, their trucking routes? What's the pain that's going to drive them to do that? It's because they're saving money. It's not because mm -hmm. of the CO2 reduction because they're paying way less in gas, right? Why uh, look at the example of Hydra, a great little company out of BC, they're taking waste hydrogen. So some facilities actually just emit hydrogen. In the past, they just vented it into the air. And so they're going to take that waste hydrogen and they're going to help diesel trucks that you put it into the diesel truck engine. There's a little module they put on the side of it and it increases the efficiency of the combustion. So you actually get way more efficiency out of the diesel. You're still using diesel in there, but you're using much less. Those trucking companies aren't doing it because they really want to see the hydrogen economy come around. Like, oh yeah, I've been hearing about this thing. I really want the hydrogen economy to come around. Oh yeah, I run a trucking fleet. My mm -hmm. biggest goal is reducing my carbon footprint. No, they're going to save money. Mm -hmm. That's what Hydra's value proposition is. You put my little module on the side of your truck, you're going to save money. So that's why and, and helping companies articulate that part and really sell on the things that move people like everyone's got a pain it's like you know if you're a trucking company one of your biggest costs is the fuel right mm -hmm. so if you can help them reduce that by 20 percent yeah they, they'll do you know they'll wear sparkly gl glittery pants if, it, if that's what it takes right <laughs> yeah you want to put hydrogen in the, yeah that's fine just prove it doesn't break the engine and we're all good mm -hmm. so i think that's what's going to turn it around is real business cases is technology that actually addresses people's needs. Like that's what drives people's dollars and cents. Right. Yeah. And so we're not, we, I don't think we get too caught up on the, like we certainly are all passionate. We're all believers that the world is burning and we need to do something different, but you know, we work in a capitalist system and it has to make, has to make sense for the investors and it has to make sense for the, the customer. Nobody's doing this just because it feels good. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, I mean, that's the main driver of the capitalist economy, right? Of capitalism is uh, a, greatest, a very powerful motivator, right? You, you make it sense for somebody else and that drives uh, drives adoption. Um, one Another thing I, like, I wanted to touch base on is like, um, you know, this whole explosion of Tesla, right? Tesla's yes. market cap growth, 700% growth over 20, in 2020. Right and 40% uh, growth so far in 2021. Um, 
they have captured the imagination and, and uh, Elon has captured the imagination and now the, the appeal of, of like of changing the world for better, right? So Scott Galloway, um, if you follow him as well, like he does a great analysis of, of the landscape. And one of the things that he talks about is like, and points value to is that uh, companies, uh, public traded companies trade at a multiple of their revenue, right? Apple mm-hmm. trades on like 40%, I think 40 times their revenue or something crazy like that. But traditional companies don't have that multiple, right? The brand appeal of companies, right? Outweigh the story of companies now outweigh their, their financials. And the story of Tesla is, you know, the revenues are low. The production mar- production capabilities are low, growing, but still low. Capabilities are low. They're, they, you know, they are now worth more than the, all the other auto manufacturing companies together, but make one-tenth of uh, the supply, less than that, I think, right? Um, but the reason they, they, they've exploded is because they've captured the imagination of, of the people, right, who see that, okay, this is the way moving forward. But more on that, behind the scenes, is that there's a huge fortune of, of trillions of dollars sitting in bonds and futures contracts on, in oil, gas, and, uh, and uh, energy sectors that are now de- defaulting. They're, they're, they're moving that money now into, into more stable investments like Tesla, which is much more forward-thinking model because the energy industry is now changing. Like, look, look, what, look what COVID's done, right? The airline industry is not, not moving. You know, the, the gas and oil companies are suffering. If you look at the top 10 profitable companies uh, in the world, eight out of those 10 companies are oil and gas companies, right? And they're seeing plummets into their bottom line, right? So a lot of money is shifting now and looking for new places to grow and, and go into. So I think this is the time for like great inflections of growth, like where, where novel technologies have, have, have space to grow when things are shifting and moving, right? What are you seeing? Like, are you seeing uh, adoption curves go up uh, in particular industries? Uh, um, you know, um, holistically, do you see any any patterns that uh, you're excited for? Yes, uh, yes, I, I see. I see things that that I'm excited for in terms of the adoption of technology, and I think that's the thing that if we wanted to get outside of kind of what I do on the day to day uh, is the challenge, right? Like mm-hmm. the technology exists. Like if you wanted to make a passive house, if you want, if, if, if you just wanted to say tomorrow, every house in Canada will be, will generate as much electricity or energy as it needs to use during the year. I was talking to somebody last year that already they'd built their own and they figured out they use seven kilowatts of, uh, or they need a seven kilowatt solar array on their roof to generate as much electricity throughout the year as they use. So they've got like an R70 roof and they've got really thick walls and it's really well insulated. And that house takes no, and it's got full um, electric heating. That house takes no, no power from the grid on net. It gives as much back in the summer as it takes in the winter. Mm-hmm. We can do that today. It's just choices that we're making. And so when I see, you know, BC, and I'm, I'm not sure about the built environment uh, out there uh, across the rest of the country, as, as familiar as I am with the one here, they've got a step code where they're going to move it up and say, okay, we're going to demand you put more insulation in, demand that you put in better windows, demand that you move this way. Um, and, and so the technology is there. We can use heat pumps today. We don't have to keep putting in natural gas burning boilers into houses. It's 
it's choices. And I'm starting to see people make better choices. I'm starting mm-hmm. to see the regulatory environment guide it towards, yeah, it costs more today, but it saves in the long run. Right? I think that's one of the challenges that, that I see with a lot of the technologies and solutions is it's going to cost you something today, but cost you less tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's always a problem, right? People are eating the donuts today and telling themselves they'll work out tomorrow, but it doesn't happen. Right? Yeah. The hard choices today, but I see, you know, the regulation coming in and, I, and, and again, you talk about it, like the world's burning and people are starting to realize it and saying, what do we need to do? And across, across the board, like we have carbon capture technology, there's sequestration that's happening in, in Canada. Off the top of my head, I don't know the millions of tons that uh, the Quest project is capturing from that uh, steam methane reformer in Alberta, but there's the Boundary Dam that's sequestering millions of tons a year of CO2. Like the technology exists to do these things. We just need to say, yeah, I'll pay, okay, what's your electrical bill? Eight cents a kilowatt hour? I'll pay nine cents a kilowatt hour and have it totally carbon neutral. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that extra penny and, and we'll be carbon neutral. We just have to make that choice. And I think people are starting to choose to pay more to get the, the things. And I think Tesla's a great example because I see them all over the place. Yeah. People are saying, yeah, I'll pay a little bit more for my car today and I'll pay way less in gas over the course of the year. So I think they're a great example of that shift in choices that people are making. And and maybe it's the gap. Maybe you just need to make it small enough, right? Like if, if the electric car, the first Tesla was like 130 grand or, you know, the BMW was it the i8. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's a cool looking car. Way out of my price range. Like I'm not buying an electric car yeah, that's yeah, that yeah. expensive. But if you can get it down the gap small enough, like, oh, like the Tesla 3, okay, like that's only a couple. Okay, sure. I'll buy one of those. Yeah. So maybe we need to get the gap small enough that people make the jump, but I see the gap becoming smaller. I see people becoming educated about the options that are available to them. I see more people taking those. Um, so that, that's exciting. And that's exciting for all the companies in the industry, right? I see people, uh, you know, trying out uh, hydrogen. You know, Quebec has got, uh, I think they got a, a plant underway for a 100 megawatt electrolyzer. Mm-hmm. Yeah been talking about this hydrogen economy. Ballard came to BC in the 1970s saying, oh, the hydrogen economy, it's going to be great. It's going to save everything 50 years ago, 40 years ago. And finally, they're, they're getting traction. Right? They've, they've got mm-hmm. projects underway. They've got pilots with ships. People are actually trying to use hydrogen to replace fossil fuels. So yeah, I see a lot of positive indicators. Um, you know, Loop Energy, another kind of fuel cell company based out of uh, BC here, um, signing deals with, uh, signed their license agreement with Cummins the other year. So they're going to be starting to put in, in a bunch of big heavy equipment. So the places where hydrogen makes more sense, we're starting to see people actually adopt it. And, and, and you know, it's that adoption curve. It's going to be the early adopters. It's going to be the thin end of the wedge. And then it goes to the... Uh, early majority and the late majority and then finally the lagger. So it's going to take 10 or 20 years, Yeah. but I see good things happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the struggles of any kind of new adoption, right? It's a yield curve of the, of the ROI uh, of the efficiency, right? So, I mean, the um, uh, solar, the solar industry has been plagued by this, right? Companies all around are saying like, why would I invest in this today when two, three years from now, it's going to be double the efficiency at less the cost. Right. And, and, you know, and solar is going in that curve. It's still getting more and more efficient. It's still the cost production is going more and more. There's new novel technologies coming out. So 
there's still no large scale investment in this because of that yield curve, right? It's because, yeah, the companies are not making that investment. But I think as we're reaching this plateau of like, okay, now it's like, it's not going to take me 10 years to make my ROI back. It's going to take me eight. It's going to take me seven. It's going to take me five. It's going to take me three, right? Then it becomes more and more easily accessible for the, you know, the, you know, the late majority, the, the majority of adopters, right? But uh, stepping back from this, like, uh, one of the things I want to uh, go turn return back to is your personal journey into this. You know, um, how did you know how you end up here? Like, how did you end up uh, within, within a clean tech in, uh, um, accelerator, right? Running, uh, uh, being an accelerator, uh, being a VP of acceleration, right? How's your own personal journey been? Oh well, okay. I mean, I guess we can talk about that if you want to. It's not <laughs> that interesting. I, I think the companies that we work with are, are far more, but I think. You know, I, I went to business school, yeah. wanted to learn that, came out and, and actually felt that, you know, after spending, spending a few years around the, the, the finance majors and the accounting majors and the people who are very much looking to dollars and cents as the motivation, um, didn't, didn't find that as appealing after I, I thought that that would be my calling. I thought that, you know, finance, mm -hmm. like, yeah, what I want to do is, is I want to see lots of zeros on spreadsheets and I want to move them around. That'll be really, that'll keep me passionate and engaged. And I started doing it and going through the courses and, and it wasn't as engaging as I, as I thought it would be like, it's an interesting mental exercise, but you know, you sort of mentioned the secondary stock market and the stock values of mm -hmm. companies and no new kid gets a Nintendo under the Christmas tree for secondary stock trading, right? Mm. The, the the values and kind of IPOs and putting money into companies and the other things it adds value and liquidity, but you know, it, it didn't resonate with me. Mm -hmm. So I went off and I worked for a little marketing company for a little while. And then somebody I knew actually was starting up a little venture and said, why don't you come do this? There's this big shift to LED lights. They're gonna be more efficient. This is gonna take over the world. You know, we'll, we'll do something in this space and so that sounds great. That sounds more interesting than what I'm doing over here. Yeah, let's mm -hmm. let's do something that's got huge potential. This is this is world changing. And it's going to make a big difference. And and then you know start out one little engineer, uh, founding CEO, myself, got a couple more engineers, raised a little bit of money, hired some more engineers and some other people in the business development department raise another round of money and and you know like the way it goes with uh some startups we weren't able to we just kind of commercialized the technology and and um and, and ran out of, of funds to actually market and develop it and, and it wasn't quite the fit that it, it should have been so the company wasn't yeah. successful and i think that's um, lots of lots of people who work in the industry you got scars on your back you learn a lot from the losses and i, I left that what i did learn was i loved working with electrical engineers. Mm. So I, I became passionate about the technology through that point. I became passionate about the ability to disrupt and change industries. I went and worked with a power supply company. I went and worked with a HVAC company all around energy efficiency and kind of improving what was the status quo or business as usual in industry. And then the opportunity came up and, and somebody, uh, the same person was actually the CEO at the company I worked at the little startup that, that kind of went the VC route had started working at Foresight and said, hey, we're developing a new program. Would you like to come in and, and give the authentic view of a small business person? 
to, to make sure that that's kind of reflected in what's going on. And, and so started out working part-time at Foresight, developing that program, making sure it was delivered appropriately and slowly took on more and more responsibility and more and more roles until I became a full-time employee at the uh, Foresight. And, um, and, and I guess what, what I loved when I started that first little company was, you know, you've got this, this little product and, and it's you against the world and you, you're going to bring this product to this market and you're going to change everything. It's going to be great. And it's really passionate. It's really cool. I guess at the end of the day, I'm a little bit of a nerd. Like I get excited about this. Oh, you're going to do what? Oh, you're going to use some membranes, do some carbon mm-hmm. capture and can't get the forecast and have 97% efficiency. So that's always really exciting to me. And I mean, the HVAC company was like controls, like, oh, okay, if we turn off the boiler here and there, and oh, if we set the right temperatures, oh, we can save 20%. And like, this is a no brainer. Why aren't people doing this? We need to do this. And now instead of like one little great idea at a time, I get to work with all these people with all mm-hmm. these great ideas. I mentioned already the variety, the infrastructure products, the, the water purity, the water measuring, you know, how, how do you know if water is safe? Um, the ag tech, right? All of ag tech is pretty much clean tech. It's all about reducing fertilizers, reducing pesticide use, reducing methane, producing cows. Ag tech is a huge, you know, the agriculture industry is a huge problem and there's great solutions out there. So it's been fantastic since I joined to work with so many great ideas. And really, as the kind of VP of acceleration, I work with super highly effective people, which is such a pleasure. We've got, and I mentioned a couple of times, this network of mentors who are all ex-CEOs. They've all got successful startup stories. They've all done it a couple of times under their belt. They're all really great at what they do. And it's a treat to work with them. They've all got fantastic feedback on how to improve programs, how to do things better, how to help the companies. The CEOs themselves are so passionate and engaged. You know, if you're going to train somebody on doing something, I can't imagine working with students who weren't like, yeah, this is really important. I need to know this. This is my life on the line. I remortgage my house. I need this thing to work. If you tell me how it's going to work, I'm here. I want to know. I need to know today because I've got a presentation tomorrow about it. So it's really uh, uh, kind of a pleasure and an honor to, to work with these people. And the fact that, you know, I've sort of said our model is very, market driven like we want you to have a real value proposition a real story but a lot of these guys come with a purpose mm-hmm. that that's very personal like what you know why are you starting a water purification company well you know the one story from one guy was because he grew up in a remote community in, in northern alberta and, and it had some water quality issues and other communities around were having water quality issues He's like well i'm Somebody needs to make a system that's affordable and works for these people that they can have safe water to drink. And going, that's great. Right? Like, mm-hmm. Of course, yeah, I'm behind that 100%. Everybody should have safe water to drink. All right, how can I help? Right? Like, yeah. isn't that, aren't those the people you want to get up and help? You go, oh, that, that's why you're doing it? So some kid can have safe water to drink before he goes to school? Yes, I agree with that. How can we help? And now let's find the business model that makes it work. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a reason to get up in the morning. You know, uh, I, I, I feel, you know, talking to you, I'm, I'm talking about kindred spirit. Like, I feel like we've gone through a similar trajectory. Right? I, I've actually have a background working in an LED lighting company, an HVAC oh, no company. Way. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, like I'm seeing a lot of parallels here. And uh, you know, working with startups, uh, like exactly that, like that 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 moment of saying like, wow, this is a great idea. This is a great idea. This is a great idea. You're surrounded by these like high level people who are just coming out with like great things of seeing these great patterns and you're working on level uh, in a high level capacity to make big, great changes. Right. It's, it's a different level for someone who's like, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a little ADD, you know, I like working on different things. I like having my mixed bag efforts, but also like knowing that I'm making a long-term difference, you know, yeah. staring an Excel spreadsheet, working in the finance industry. I can imagine like, you know, yeah, you're, you know, making the bank, you're making the bankroll, you're making, you're making, you're making money, but like, Again, what is the, the impact, right? What are, what are this leading towards? What, what kind of change can I make? And I think that's one of the rewarding aspects of the innovation industry is like, yeah, like there's a failure. It's a heartbreak moment of you see these people who are passionate who fail apart. But again, like you all see them get to dust off and start seeing again, you know, the resiliency. And I think, you know, this the, 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 into entrepreneurs as a niche category is changing, right? I think just like like the third industrial revolution made like uh, factory workers into white collar workers you know, and it's changed it changed the it, it changed the, the the model of work it changed the the skill sets required i think we're seeing that with the fourth industrial revolution as machines and ai take over and make you know mental labor almost like almost ethereal and obsolete and uh, you now have access to more technology machines that can do like high level labor so now it's about creativity, right? How can you put these things together to solve problems? How can you be a problem solver? And I think we're seeing an emerging class of people becoming more and more classically trained at this, mostly through you know, these incubators and accelerators who put them through these intensive programs of, okay, cool, you like doing this, you are passionate about this, perfect. Now, how can we make you more organized? How can you make this more a selective process so that you're going, you're, you know, we're reducing the lifespan, we're, we're catalyzing your capabilities in, to enter the market space. And even if you fail this time, that experience can be used as a step, you know, as a step ladder for the next one, you know? And I think there's a, the, 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 the real falsehood in entrepreneurship is that, you know, we see the Zuckerbergs of the world and like, oh man, 18 year old just killed it right off the park. But a lot of like, there's a lot of like people who don't have the same brand recognition who are three times, four times into the, into the innovation industry, like in, into innovating and have these scars and failures behind them that drives them. Right. Uh, and even if it, if they don't jump back in the fray, they're helping somebody else, right? They're taking that knowledge gap and putting it away. And I love the fact that you to point at the fact that what led you here was a personal failure. You're working in a small company that ended up falling apart, but that scar will definitely drive you. That'll haunt you behind you, right? And you know, I, I definitely feel it. I've, I've been, I have had that, uh, had that personal experience myself, right? You never forget that. Yeah. And working with others, being able to like, hey, this is, I personally went through this, or I've seen this happen so many times. I don't want you to go through this because I like your idea. I like you as a person. And being able to invest not just capital. But like intellectual capital, relationship capital, right? Inject things uh, of value into into emerging companies. I think that's really rewarding. Yeah, there's something that uh, I wanted to pick up. You said there, and the first time I heard it said was Dan Gunn. He's a CEO or executive director of Viatech over on Vancouver Island, and he said, "We're not building rocket ship rocket ships. We're training astronauts, right? Like this mm -hmm. rocket ship might crash and burn, but." The skills you take will will go into your next venture. And even if this rocket ship is super successful, you'll be exiting in three to four years. They're going to bring in a su successful CEO or a successful management team, and you'll be on to your next venture. Right. So the things that we're teaching these people are are, are building astronauts. I love that uh, analogy for 
you know, we're investing in the people, right? And mm -hmm. even if they go on and they join another large company, the skills that they give them and the thinking and the critical thinking skills, the ability to analyze opportunities uh, really pays off. And, and we're actually starting to talk to some of the universities about that, that for your grad students, for your PhD students, whether they're going to take their skills and become an entrepreneur or whether they're just going to go work in somebody else's company, it's still the same thing, right? The projects need to be successful. It has to have value to somebody. So how are you thinking of that? How are you thinking of financial return? You know, all these skills are, are, are valuable to people, whether they're leading their company or just leading a division of somebody else's company or working under that person and, and saying, hey, you know what? This doesn't seem right to me. I think we're going to spend the whole years going down a blind alley. Like, let's mm -hmm. not do this, right? Yeah. I think if everybody's a little more efficient, we'd all win. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, certainly it is It is so much about the people. It's, it's all about the people. We are. It, it's about knowledge and talent and capability. And you sort of said that, uh, that person, Luna, I think you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. who spotted that opportunity. It's like, why are we throwing that out? Like, mm -hmm. why are you paying to have that taken away and ground up and thrown down the sewer into the garbage and thrown away? I bet you somebody would pay for that, right? Yeah. Those, that ability to see opportunities and is very valuable. How can we train people to look for opportunities? And, and when they see them, instead of going about their day, go, wow, why are we throwing that out? How can we use that? Like, we can't, we can't afford to throw stuff out. Mm-hmm. We've got a limited, limited resources, limited planet, limited space, limited everything. Mm -hmm. So we can't, we can't act. I think the way we have before. Yeah. Uh, a topic I want to touch on, and I would love to get you know throw your weight behind this, right? Uh, to get get your kind of uh, thoughts behind this. So, the climate crisis, uh, especially when it comes to Canada, right? It's we're handling a very unique situation because we're one of the three countries that have direct access to the Arctic Circle. The Arctic ice is melting. It's opening up opportunities for oil and gas uh, uh, extraction from the, from the Arctic to uh, ship lanes being opening up. But of the three nations, we are the most least populated when it comes to our northern territories, right? And uh, there's a calculated effort. Um, it's called the 2030 plan, uh, Canada, Canada plan, and the, the two plans, the 2030 plan and the 2100 plan. So Canada has this uh, plan that's been working on for the past 20 years. By 2100, it wants to increase its population size to 100 million people, and we and pu push that population to the northern areas. Um, so we all assume that, you know, why does 80% of our population live near the 49th parallel? It's because the states is there, right? We're, we want to cl be close to the world's biggest economy, but actually, and actually, if you look at our founding of our country. The reason why the population is so close to the 49th parallel is because we were at war with the states for for the beginning of our beginning of our beginning of our uh, beginning of the country's uh, history, right? As the British Empire, so uh, Canada purposely built the infrastructure to bring the population close to America, just in case there's a second invasion like the War of 1812, there's a ready population ready to uh, uh, defend. That's why all the population is located so near uh, America. And well, I mean, I, I, I'm not a historian by any means. I will tell you, my dad once took me on a train trip to Winston, sorry, Churchill, Manitoba. Mm -hmm. Churchill, Manitoba in August. And it was freezing cold. It was a windy day. I would argue that the reason we don't <laughs> live farther north in this country is because it is an inhospitable climate, right? It is mm -hmm. literally black at night in the winter, 24 hours a day. Like there's other things other than, you know, some historical and some political drivers there. But uh, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, I do take your argument. Um, mm -hmm. There's reasons. So 
not to cut you off, your, your question is, do I think it's a good thing populating the rest of our territory? No. So I, I, what I want to see is what are like, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to get some predictions out of here, right? Like, yeah. like, you know, there's this Canada's looking to increase the population, move further up north. Um, of the three nations that are surrounding the Arctic Circle, we're the least populated. So Russia has, uh, I think, five million people right by the Arctic Circle, right? Mm -hmm. Similar to where you're talking about. They're living in those kind of conditions, but they're in urbanized areas. Denmark, same thing, right? Um, so uh, for as a nation, right, like we have, the, uh, you know, we have uh, resources there within, within our borders that could drive uh, uh, industry. Right. Oh. Uh, second, uh, the climate is changing. The, the, the tundra is thawing out. The permafrost is thawing out. The boreal forest is retreating and opening up more arable territory, uh, arable land. Right. Um, do you have you put in your see me research or any kind of ideation come up of what Canada looks like over the next hundred years? Like there seems to be a systematic plan. But what does that look like? You know, you know, actually, interestingly, that's not something I've uh, looked into. I, I was I was tempted to ask you whether you were going to ask for my prediction on whether you could make me cry by, by continuing that <laughs> to list all the things that are happening. Yeah. But I, I, I haven't, and, and I think it would be a, an interesting thought experiment, um, you know, what, what the planning is. Obviously, I think the oil and gas industry has recognized that it's uh, on counting its last days. I believe in the last few weeks of the Trump administration here, they did try to uh, auction off the lease on some oil and gas rights up in the north of Alaska. Mm -hmm. And the state of Alaska ended up having to buy it because the bids were so low. Mm -hmm. Right. So they thought, you know, 10 years ago, this would have been a treasure trove of oil and gas. And now people have realized like, even if we buy it now, somebody's going to stop us using it later on, or the price just isn't going to make sense because the extraction is going to be too costly up there. So I don't think that those resources make sense. I mean, I, I do know there's like, you know, Uranium City uh, yeah. up in uh, northern Saskatchewan, aptly named because they mine uranium there. Mm. And, and so, you know, if you have a push towards um, nuclear power, which France is bullish on, and I think the, the Japanese are going back towards, and, you know, it, it, it depends on, on, what some of those drivers are in the natural resources. But if you look at the population, I, I would say it's mainly built around what are the natural resources. Like Fort McMurray was a go uh, started the, the boom there around, oil and, uh, around the oil sands when that became viable. And I think that goes away. So what are the natural resources that are gonna drive expansion into those territories? Uh, of that, I'm not aware. I mean, certainly, uh, but mining and, and I've seen you know, some interesting technologies for extracting lithium for lithium ion batteries out of the brine mm -hmm. that comes out of, uh, comes out of um, the, the oil sands. So, I mean, yeah, there's other, you know, we've got a massive territory. We've got tons of natural resources. I think that drives the kind of population where people locate, right? Like nobody's yeah. founding new cities unless there's economic opportunity. So, you know, if there's shipping lanes there, Right, as the sea ice retreats and people have year-round shipping through the Northwest Passage is a quicker way from get to Asia to Europe. Yeah, there'll be stopovers. There'll be, uh, you know, the I had the displeasure because for a nine-year-old, like a seven-day Alaska cruise is actually really not a lot of fun when you're not like it's a pretty small <laughs> space. But I, my parents did drag me on that. I'll tell you about all the more time. I'll tell you all the 
places my dad took me I didn't like, but now <laughs> I look back and I'm like, oh, he wanted me to see nature. Oh, I get it. I see what he was trying to do. I didn't yeah. like it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe there's a cruise industry and that's a, you know, maybe they find a way to make that not an ecological disaster. Maybe they find a way to make that not a, a huge health risk, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, if you've got shipping lanes, I once sat on a speech that somebody did that I actually talked about interestingly Vancouver they're like what's the industry in Vancouver like you know Seattle has Boeing and Microsoft what do you guys have mm. you guys have a big shipping port right all a bunch of rail lines end in Vancouver and ships pick up the stuff and take it over to Asia mm -hmm. so you know if you've got shipping over through the Northwest uh, passage there do you, do you have industry that pops up around that that encourages people to relocate for economic reasons right mm -hmm. Um, that I guess would be my driver, but you know, the, 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 the reality is Canada has a ton of resources. I think we've got like 10% of the world's fresh water, right? That's going to be stressed. Like, yeah, people are going to want to move here because we've got a lot of open space and we've got a lot of access to some of the resources you need for, for life, right? Lots yeah. of space to grow food, lots of water to do it with, um, uh, I think we, it's attractive for a lot of reasons uh, and, and still, yeah. And, and the, the challenge is we can't balance what we do now. So lots more people is going to make it harder for us to meet our goals, but we have to meet our goals all around the world for it to make any sense. Right. That's, that's the biggest challenge is that it's not just us. It, you know, I, I, some of the innovators are super passionate and they're like, Oh yeah, I recycle everything. I, I you buy nothing. I bring all my own bags and you know they do everything i walk places i have an electric car <laughs> they themselves have like this tiny little footprint i mean it doesn't matter if someone in houston texas is is making up for it right like we yeah. all have to find a way to reduce our footprints together like it, it, it's that's the kind of tragedy the commons that surrounds this that you know hopefully we make it cheap enough and easy enough to do yeah i don't know Ravi, what do you think yeah, do we I mean, pull out of this one? Do we make yeah. it nice? How is our uh, old age going to look? What's your prediction? My prediction, so for me, what I'm really interested in is Canada's plan uh, 2030 moving forward is in, uh, is uh, cultivating the space mining industry. So, oh, okay, okay. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm, I'm watching that aggressively. So Canada launched a new agency. Um, starting 2030, they're going to foster uh, space mining operations. Like... You know, I'm not sure what I'm looking for is I'm not sure if Canada itself doesn't have a space program or it's going to indirectly support it. But uh, basically, almost every industrialized nation across the world is gearing up um, for the next space race. So the first space race won't be humans, it'll be more, um, more uh, robots, micro robots, yeah. right, going up. But they're following like the Magna Carta type of uh, type of uh, uh, the law of the sea kind of route when it comes to space, right? So if you land there and you and you and you uh, if you get there first and you prove those mineral rights there, you can claim mineral rights, right? So if you so the first I think the wave of the space race is going to be just spend sending just a bunch of micro robots out there that can go and source source uh, materials and say oh, what this is what's there and then just claim it. And then um, there'll be infrastructure being built, uh, especially in Canada, for you to, you know, take loans against it. So just like a terrestrial exploration, you know, you go out and get mining rights and you, you find, find something, find a value of it, and you leverage against it, and then you launch an exploration, the same thing's going to happen. But um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in that being fostered. I'm really interested in Canada's particular play in that. 
because Canada, I think uniquely is uh, rather than just providing, you know, rocketeering technology or a particular technology, I think it's going to coalesce and bring a bunch of industries together around it um, to bring to foster the innovation and channel channel that to, 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 towards new heights. So that's 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 my main thing focus right now is watching that kind of uh, industry kind of develop and foster. And again, talking about the old, all the open land that we have, I think uh, there's more than more than uh, opportunity for us to develop our population and grow it, especially as you know, uh, you know, water, sea water rises. They're saying about the next 20 years, uh, close to five to 10 million people are going to be dispersed, uh, especially from South Asia. They're going to need places to go, and with our fresh water supplies and our areas that's arable and uh, ready to be taken over. Even though if it is going to be cold and miserable, it's going to be a lot better <laughs> than being submerged in water, right? So it's going to drive a lot of a uh, lot of lot of change for us, right? And uh, greater population leads to greater um, greater cultivation of. Uh, uh, of talent pools, right? I mean, one of the things that we as a nation have done is we cultivate uh, people who come in. We don't just, even our refugees are cream of the crop. Uh, our our, our, our um, immigrants are pre-selected based off of knowledge and capabilities and resources they bring into the country, right? Mm -hmm. So we as a nation, uh, are a nation of immigrants cultivating the best of the best of the, of the mind to come here to make use of our infrastructure to build the next future. So I think the future of Canada is gonna be very bright. And it's going to become a world leader, uh, especially through the innovation industry. Yeah, no, I think, you know, our mission at Foresight, we're quite proud of what the clean tech industry has done to date. I think, you know, the clean tech forum, which is based in San Francisco, they put out their like top 100 clean tech companies every year. And I think it was last year, Canada had 12 out of the 100. And if you look on a population basis, right, that's, that's way disproportionate performance for mm -hmm. Canada. So yeah. we've, We've got some a good head start there, and I think you're absolutely right. We have to be innovative and looking to provide solutions, and looking to provide solutions that scale outside of Canada. I love that view of like the space. Like, yeah, like that's how can you think as big as possible? We're gonna mine the universe for yeah. what we need. Like, my possible is limitless, and and I often talk to people. It's like, yeah, don't don't try selling it to the guy next door or your own municipality. Don't get bummed when they won't buy it. Go to a municipality down in the states or in Europe or someone who's more forward-thinking or you know, go find yeah. go find your best market. It's mm -hmm. a big world. There's lots of opportunity. And I think yeah. that's uh, we've got the, the, the massive opportunity. And you see like exits like Slack. You know those guys. Good good for them. Good Absolutely. for them. That's a good exit. But you got to think big, right? You know there, yeah. there's a lot of opportunity in the world, and we can build great companies here, scale great companies here have a massive impact and so I, I i would agree with you i think the future is very bright mm -hmm. so let's end off with uh, foresight um as an accelerator if people listening into uh, tuning into this um if they have ideas for clean tech and and want to uh, have a mission to push things forward how can they get involved how can they uh get accepted and what are you guys looking for can you give us a spiel yeah for sure so uh one, go to our website, foresightcac.com. I don't know if there's going to be a little mention in the description. Absolutely. Fantastic link Absolutely. to put in there. Yeah. We have programs. We have our Kickstart program. If you like those technology readiness levels, we like them because it's used by a lot of the funding agencies here in Canada. So as you're doing technology development, you know, if you're early stage, if you're ideation, TRL 1 to 3, we've got our Kickstart program, help you really discover your customers' pains. If you're kind of tier off four to seven, we've got our launch and deliver programs um, to help you through that stage of your development. If you're really validating your idea, 
validating your business model and iterating around that. All of our programs are a combination of e-learning modules as well as one-on-one -on -one mentorships. We also run uh, webinars. We have a cohort model. So we bring together people at the same stage so you can kind of learn from each other, build it, get involved with the clean tech community, find out the other people to ask for, you know, I need a reference on an IP lawyer. I need a reference on a great contract manufacturer for this. The other people in your space will help you try to build and foster that. And then finally, if you're scaling up, if you found your product market fit and you're growing, unfortunately, the challenges don't stop. I don't want to ruin anybody's day. It's still hard, right? You've raised that first million, that first 10 million, you've hired that first 10 or 20 new employees. It's, it's different challenges, but the challenges continue. And so we do have a growth program for clean tech companies that are scaling up. We do want to continue to support the clean tech uh, industries there. So if you do, uh, if you are an innovator and you do have a clean tech company or a clean tech idea, go to our website, apply. There's a little program section there. If you are by any chance part of a large industrial organization, I didn't mention our, our like Vestas challenge. They're looking for mm -hmm. a way to like recycle their wind turbine blades or use materials will be more easily recyclable. If you happen to work for any large industrial uh, party, we are always happy to chat and see how we can help you run some open innovation programs and to sort of get that feedback on the challenges you're having. I think that covers it. Yeah, that was great. Okay. Perfect. Stephen, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed having you on. Thank you for your time. And, uh, Thank you for this conversation and everyone who tuned in. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Ravi. It was a lot of fun. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.